official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. Oh, the Slugfest! You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. Oh, the Battlecast! And now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. It's good night, Irene! Welcome to K1 Battlecast, the official podcast of the all-new Reborn K1. I'm Michael Chavello down under in Melbourne, Australia, joined as always by my podcast verbal sparring partner, who I'm glad to say is adding some Aussieisms to his vernacular, my mate up in Tokyo, Jonathan Share. G'day, Jonathan. Hello from up over, mate. Jonathan, now that you've seemingly got the word mate down in your Aussie vernacular, I need you to now perfect g'day. I want you to now on greet me as g'day or g'day mate, and we will be on our way to making you a fully-fledged honorary Australian if you can nail g'day and mate and do it in the same sentence. Well, I like that uh, fully-fledged honorary Australian. Good. Um, I can add it to the list. You know, and I'm not bragging, but um, I'm actually uh, an honorary Canadian as well. And people say that I dress French, so I, I don't know what that <laughs> means. But um, okay, here we go. Uh, good day, mate. I really got to sell that. Okay. Good day, mate. It's hard to say that without doing the accent. Okay. How was that? All right. Well, a big show on no? the cards today, folks. Okay. We've got oh, the latest news. We've also got a special edition of K1 Rewind answering your questions about old memories from K1. And I'll tell you what, there are some absolute rippers in there. Plus, we have an exclusive interview with the big chief from Australia, Peter Graham, who is going to recap the entire controversy, all the drama that happened back in 2006 and his showdown in Auckland, New Zealand with Bada Hari that was fireworks at the official press conference. It ended up in a street fight between him and Bada. And then, of course, when they fought the all-time classic Rolling Thunder knockout in the final 13 seconds that broke Bada Hari's jaw in two places. We've got Peter Graham talking about it exclusively coming up shortly. Jonathan, first of all, though, Let's go right to this week's news. This just in. That's news to me, man. Okay, it is time for the news on K1 Battlecast. And Jonathan, there's plenty of news going on. Uh, one interesting one that I have learned this week is that the draw for the K1 Max Final 8 will actually take place in Tokyo on March 21st, the day after the all-new K1 Max Reborn on March 20 at Yoyogi Stadium. And it's going to be old-school style. It's going to be the way they used to do the K1 draw for the tournaments where the fighters will pull the balls out of the hat numbered one to eight they'll take their position and they can decide their destiny i always loved this style of k1 grand prix draws i'm excited and you know what jonathan i'm going to be hosting that event on march 21 in tokyo i can't wait i'm super excited as well you know i'm going to be working right alongside you uh we're going to be ringside i'm sure and what an event, 25 or more fights in one day, mind-boggling. So a ton to look forward to. I'm really looking forward to actually meeting some of the listeners, and I'm hoping some of you will stop by our booth, um, or at least say hello. 
And there's more stuff happening all around the world as well, Jonathan. Yeah, well, there's the May 19th World Grand Prix Tournament in New York City, and they're still working out the details with the New York Athletic Commission, so we'll see how that develops. But I do know that the K1 producers like Carlos Kikuta are working really hard to iron out those details. So we'll let everyone know more when we have the information at our fingertips. Great stuff. That's the news for this week on K1 Battlecast. Okay, Jonathan, something a little different for K1 Rewind this week. Uh, We are going to go to some fan questions that have come from all around the world that are to do with rewound moments in K1. So you've got the list of questions there. Hit me with the first one and I'll do my best to answer them all. All right, Michael, the first one we have is uh, from Mark from Corpus Christi, Texas, who writes, what was the biggest OMG moment that you ever saw in K1? Man, there are so many answers to this. Uh, Bada Hurry getting red carded in the 2008 Grand Prix final. Ray Sefo dropping Semi Schult. Uh, Zambides versus Chahid, the entire fight. Peter Graham's rolling thunder knockout of Bada Hurry. Uh, Bob Sapp beating Ernesto Hoost both times. Peter Ertz beating Semi Schult in Seoul to keep Schult out of the 2008 Grand Prix. I mean, so many moments that had me mouth agape, staring in disbelief at what I'd just seen. But I think, Mark, that the one that most stands out was when Mighty Mo knocked out Hongman Choi. Choi had never been knocked out before. Nobody could really reach his jaw because he was seven foot two or 218 centimeters tall. Now, Mighty Mo was a short heavyweight, around six foot one, 185 centimeters. So he gave up over a foot in height to Choi. Mo's one great hope was to get on the inside and land the overhand right to Choi's jaw. And 50 seconds into the second round, that's just what Mo did. I was commentating ringside with Ernesto Hoost, and we were both flabbergasted when we saw it. It was the overhand right heard around the world. They may have even heard that one on the International Space Station. It was crazy. And uh, off the top of my head, it is the biggest, oh my God, moment I'd ever seen in K1. And, you know, literally the biggest, oh my God, moment dropping Choi, who was seven foot two. Yeah, I was there for that event as well. And you could actually see a cartoonish outline of Hongman Choi in sweat hover for just a brief moment as he crashed to the canvas. I mean, it was it was crazy. What an event. Okay, next question. Ken from Calgary, Alberta asks, who was the biggest waste of talent you ever saw in K1? Hmm. Well, Ken, I, I think there's a common answer that most experts and fans agree on here, and it's Alexei Ignashov. Alexei had the size, he had the technique, he had the speed, he had the IQ, he had the looks. He had everything needed to become a K1 champion. And truth be told, Alexei could have been a multiple K1 champion, but he drank too much. He partied too much. His enormous talent was never fully realized. I mean, this was a guy that other fighters were actually scared to face Because on his day, he was just ferocious. On his day, Alexei could beat anyone. Not only could he beat anyone, he could handle anyone with ease. In his era, around 2001, if he hadn't parted so much, 
if he'd been more disciplined, I think Ignashov could have been a K1 Grand Prix champion, and I really think he could have had a long reign. I mean, during those, uh, I guess, lesser years, people call them, in 2003 and 2004, when Remy Bonjaski went back-to-back as champion, I think around that time, if Alexei had been disciplined, uh, he would have been the king of K1. Okay, moving on, we have a question uh, from Lisa from Manchester, England. She writes, would Bruce Lee have won the K1 World Max? What do you think, Michael? Well, Lisa, interesting question. Uh, First of all, Bruce Lee was a little light for Max. I think Bruce weighed around 65 kilos, and I wonder if he would have been as fast as he was with an extra five or six kilos packed on. Bruce Lee did a martial art called Wing Chun, which is a style of Kung Fu. He later developed Jeet Kune Do, which was his own style. It was a hybrid martial art composed of of various styles. Bruce really was the first mixed martial artist, so to speak. Would he have won the greatest pound-for-pound kickboxing crown on the planet? Would he have beaten the likes of Buakau, Petrosian, Sauer, Masato? I don't think so. Bruce would have had to learn kickboxing and then develop high-level kickboxing to become a K1 Max champion. Now, Bruce Lee was a sponge. He was able to soak up knowledge of various martial arts, but that said, it would take years and years for him to develop his striking to a level to be able to compete with your Sowers and your Masatos, your Buakals, your Petrosians. If you take Bruce Lee at his prime and put him in a ring against Petrosian and in Petrosian's prime and have them fight under K1 rules, I don't think there is any way that Bruce Lee wins that fight. Okay, here's our last question. We have one from Carl from Cape Town, South Africa, who asks, who was the best fighter to never become K1 World Max champion? Another really good question, Carl. Uh, Some names that immediately come to mind are Yoshihiro Sato, Mike Zambides, Koei Ruamaki, but the best to never win the Max was most certainly, I believe, Arta Kishenko. Kishenko was all sorts of awesome. He was big, almost six feet tall, and man, he was built. I think he walked around close to 80 kilos. His technique was superb. He had speed. He had power. He could take punishment. And he just, you know, he never went all the way, though. You could argue that Kishenko didn't peak until after K1 was finished. Kishenko holds post-2010 wins over Andy Sauer, over Gago Drago, over Nicky Holtzkin, over Jodson Klai, even a win over Alex Pereira. Yeah, that's right, that guy, Alex Pereira. And Kishenko finished his career, get this, on an amazing five-year, 20-match undefeated streak. So I can't help but wonder that if K1 Max had been around after 2010, if Kishenko would have been a multiple-time winner. And I should mention that if Jodson Klai had been given a decent run in K1, I think he could have been Max Champion. Yod was such a dominant Muay Thai fighter during the Buakau K1 era, and that was a problem. 
K1 didn't want too many ties coming in and dominating. So they kind of limited just they limited it just to Buakau. And they changed the rules because of Buakau. Because Buakau was so bloody good and so dominant. Yodson Clyde didn't really get a look in in an era where he was untouchable. I mean, between August 2005 and February 2008, Yodson Clyde did not lose a fight. I would have loved to have seen Yod given a real run in K1 Max. So, so getting back to your question, in that era of K1 Max, Yod Sinclair was probably the best fighter on the planet to never become a K1 Max champion because he didn't really get a crack at it. He had like two, two K1 Max fights and he won them both. But for those that were constantly fighting in, in K1 Max, uh, it had to be Arta Kishenko. Great bunch of questions, and uh, Jonathan, that was a fun one. We'll do that again, but that wraps this week's edition of K1 Rewind. Welcome to a very special section of K1 Rewind. This week, we are going to bring in the guest associated with our K1 Rewind because we are looking at one of the most epic rivalries, not only in K1, but in kickboxing history, I'm talking the Chief Peter Graham versus Bada Hurry over three fights. Let's talk to the big chief now, all the way from Sydney, Australia. It's good day to Peter Graham. G'day, Pete. Hey, Mr. Michello. Michello. <laughs> How you doing, you'll man? Get it, you'll get it right one day. We've only known each other about 25 years. Yeah, yeah. At least I'm not calling you Daryl or something. I've got to be honest, there was a few fights I ducked when I should have slipped. Uh, I think that may be playing with the, uh, the old memory. It is good to hear from you, mate. We are going to delve into what has been described both by myself and by many other commentators for years as one of the most epic rivalries and grudges in, in K1 in kickboxing history, you versus Bada Hari. And uh, to do this, we've got to go all the way back, first of all, to 2006. And the first time that you fought Bada Hari was in New Zealand, of course, in uh, in Auckland. Um, Mate, this is the one that went viral. This is the one that made history. And it all began at the press conference, which I hosted and maybe instigated a little. But let's go through that press press conference because it is as famous, if not more famous, than the fight itself. And if I remember correctly in the press conference, you got to speak first and you had the sunglasses on and you said to Bada Hari, Pretty much, you're a young punk who's been calling out every K1 fighter that's made K1 what it is. You've been disrespecting all the K1 fighters. Tell me what was going through your heart, through your mind at that moment, your thoughts towards this cocky young Bada Hari when you said that. You know, at that particular time, you know, Bada was, you know, he was coming up. Of course, he was talented. We knew who he was. I'd seen him. I think he just, uh, was it Stefan Leko with a spinning back kick? Correct. Uh, and everyone was talking about him, and you know, and he was an upstart. And at that particular uh, tournament in New Zealand, you know, K1 was just epically popular. However, you know, anyone who'd been in K1 or anyone who'd been around K1 knew that the fighters who were at the top of that division, top 16, even top 32, you know, have worked super hard to get there. And a lot of the top eight, definitely all of the top eight, and most of the top 16 
had been there on and off periodically for quite some time, really making K1 what it was. And I, you know, I knew that uh, Bader and I was going to fight, and I knew that he was a bit of an upstart. But I also knew that after viewing as many tapes as I get a hold of, he kind of answered the questions the same way. He kind of was saying the same things all the time. My good friend Tony Dow and I, who of course you know, um, were up in the hotel room before that actual event happened, and I was practicing, you know, smart-ass comments and you know, quick retorts to what I thought he might be saying. So I just didn't want him uh, to catch me off guard. Also, and uh, you know, from my point of view, I thought, you know what? He's good, but you're not unbeatable. You know, every every everyone has their nemesis, right? Everyone has that person that has the ability to beat them, and everyone has their chink in their armor. And at that time, I personally felt because of the way that he trained and the style that he came from and the way that he delivered his techniques that he was open specifically for a roll kick or what people like to call the rolling thunder. Uh, and... You know, although that's, you know, the most famous because of what happened with Badahari. I'd been working on and perfecting that particular kick for years before, right from... Oh, yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the first time we'd seen it in Australia, of course. It was probably the first time the world had seen it, but we knew that it was the, the Peter Graham specialty if you're you know, a fan of yours in Australia, of course, and watch you on Fox Sports for many years. And getting back to that press conference, Peter, you, you're right, because Bada verbally seemed to be a one-trick pony at the time. I always tell the story, uh, you may have heard it before, that after he knocked out Stefan Leko in Tokyo with that magnificent spinning hook kick, one of the all-time great knockouts, on the fighter's bus back to the hotel in Tokyo that night, Badahari was there along with Jerome, Ernesto Hust, Peter Ertz, Ray Sefo, and on the bus, he went up to each of them and he said, Ray Sefo, how old are you? And Ray said his age, ah, oh, you're an old man, I'm going to knock you out. Jerome LeBanner, how old are you? oh, you're an old man, I'm going to knock you out. And that is exactly what he said to you at the press conference, wasn't it? He got up and he said, hey, hey, Peter, how old are you? And you knew that was coming because I think you pretty much said to Bada, is that all you've got? Is that all you're going to ask? The same question you've asked everyone. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I, I knew that he'd been asking everyone that and he was, you know, trying to, you know, that was his schmick, you know, that was his thing. He was going to say that I'm the I'm, I'm younger than everyone. Uh, that obviously didn't work out too well for him now. He's obviously the old man. But you know what? It was it, it was frustrating to me because I, I really felt he was disrespecting everyone. And I like, you know, and he wasn't doing it. To me, it wasn't in a cool way. Uh, I, I thought it was disrespectful and, you know, and laughable. And for myself personally, I've worked my ass off to get there. You know, I've had, you know, bad draws and you know all the stuff that went on with Kyok Shin uh, and you know it, 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 it was not only tough to get there you know it's you know tougher probably even to stay there so you know I really wanted to you know I really wanted to beat the fuck out of him and also I was psyched I was in good shape uh, I think I'd just come off a win of uh, Alexander uh, uh, Ishnikov Ishnikov those Russian and Belarusian names are tough to say sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, he was one of the 
you know, I personally think he's probably the, the greatest fighter never to win K1 along with Badahari. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I, I agree with you. So, you know, what was interesting in that press conference as well, Peter, was that uh, Bada then got up and as he walked towards you, he also called you an amateur. He said, I've looked at tapes of you. You're an amateur. You're not a pro. The thing that he didn't know and the thing that a lot of people worldwide didn't know, but we in Australia knew, is that by this stage in your career, you'd had wins over, as you said, Alexei Ignashov. You'd had a win over Slam Sam Greco. You had a win over Mark Hunt. You know, you had wins over Jason Sutty. These are some big names you'd already beaten. Ricardo Vanderbos was another one you'd beaten just before you fought Barter Hurry. But Barter wasn't aware of that. And when he called you an amateur, um, it, it must have, I don't know, mate, that must have fired you up a little bit more, right, to be called an amateur in front of this huge press conference? You know, the, the crazy thing is, is that kind of stuff, it just didn't, it was water off a duck's back. Uh, uh, to me, the thing that, I wanted more than anything else. I, I wanted to, I wanted to beat the biggest guys, and I, and I kept beating them, and I couldn't get through in K one. They kept on holding me back and not giving me give you know big enough fights. You know, it's like oh well, sorry, you know, yeah, just I don't know, powers beyond my control, which is part of combat sports, right? But I knew at, at the time I thought I knew that if I beat better, because I could tell that they really wanted this young guy. To, uh, to blow up, to be popular, because he had something that was really very interesting to the average Japanese fan, and that is he was rude as fuck. And that's, you know, as you know, Japanese people have amazing you know, social timing and awareness, and Bada seemed to be the complete opposite. And uh, you know, I, I wanted to rub him the wrong way. I wanted to say, you know what, you're, you're an embarrassment to K1, you're an embarrassment to yourself, your coach, your gym, your family, and you know what? Uh, do whatever you want, say whatever you want, and you know it's him saying, you know, because I didn't respect him as a person. Uh, what he said to me was totally irrelevant. I think that in the verbal battle, and as you said, that is really interesting. The story you tell about being in your hotel room uh, earlier on that day with Tony Dow, Tony, a, a, a legend in. Uh, in, in Australian security business and your longtime best friend and manager, uh, but rehearsing lines for retorts against Butter because in a fight of any magnitude, Peter, as you would know, there are always mental games before the fight, before the physical fight actually happens and during the fight. But beforehand, you try and win points off your opponent. And I believe you won that verbal sparring battle at the press conference because all Butter could say at the end of it, because he didn't have that maturity, was drop dead M fucker, right? That's what he said to you. Those were his final words, drop dead motherfucker. And you you pretty much, you laughed. I saw you laugh, you smirked because you knew there and then, didn't you, that you were already inside his mind. He lost the, he lost the, he lost the press conference. You know, he, he lost that because he lost control. And then him coming over to me, uh, trying to kiss me. I mean, I don't know what the fuck that was about. It was, you know, it's like, Get out of my face! Don't, don't, don't keep pushing your luck, because you have thoroughly mistaken, you know, the danger that you're in. You know, something else that a lot of people are unaware of is that fight. Ada came in fresh. I came in fresh. We had the same amount of time uh, to train and prepare for the fight. But the the circumstances around the other two fights uh, is a podcast on its own, and you know, if there's, you know, the you know, I, I'm incredibly lucky and fortunate to have and have done what I've done, in, you know, in kickboxing, boxing and MMA. And, of course, you know, K1 
one. Wow, what a special time for kickboxing. But there was always and still is that one one small tiny regret that I didn't have one more fight with Bata where it was just one super fight and we were, were both the same. Yeah. The, yeah. the second in Hong Kong, he was holding on. He was he was fighting scared. Don't get me wrong, though. I, I don't disrespect Bata as an athlete. He's incredibly talented, and, and he knew what he did then. But that was you know, possibly one of his worst performances uh, because he kept holding and he kept you know, not trying to win but just get through it. Hey, you know, it's like whatever. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna hold you up there, Pete, because I want to come to those a little later on. I just want to stay on the press conference at the moment because okay. the only reason why it, it is it is along with Butter and Alistair's press conference uh, a few years later before the GP, it is the most played press conference footage of all time in kickboxing. I mean, uh, one one particular view of this video online has almost nine million watches on uh, on uh, on YouTube. It's incredible. Let's talk about that portion of the street fight, the mixed martial arts fight that actually, you know, went down at the press conference. So, because so, I remember, because once again, I was hosting the thing, you've both walked over towards each other for a photo op, you've gone head to head. Now, as you've gone head to head, I think you said to Bada, you're a young punk, and Bada said, we'll see tomorrow what happens, or somewhere along those lines. And then as you're in each other's faces, here's the interesting moment. Bada kisses you on the right cheek, but Bada, when I interviewed him later on, many years later in Amsterdam on The Voice Versus on Access TV, claimed that you were the one who first went in for a kiss on his cheek. There is a moment on the video where you do lean off to your left. I want to ask you, were you intending to plant a kiss on his cheek or was the kiss only from him? The kiss was clearly only from him. Uh uh, I I saw him coming. I thought he was going to headbutt me, so I slipped actually just right. He was coming on on on. Oh, you're probably thinking from Pat's side, so the other way around. But I thought, what's he doing? And in a split second, I felt you know there was you know I was under duress, and I thought he was either going to headbutt me or do something. So, but also in that split second, I thought if I if I go to punch him and I break something, then we're not going to have the fight. If we don't have the fight, then you know then we don't you know everyone loses. Now, so, this, is, this is the beautiful I, part here, Peter. This is the beautiful part of it because he kisses you and you question his sexuality and you, you, you give him a little nudge as if to say, you, you say, I think you say, get away from me. And then he lines up. Now, as you said, you wouldn't, you wouldn't throw a punch because you didn't want to hurt him because you hurt him, the fight's over, there goes the payday, there goes the big opportunity. But he didn't care about that. Being young and immature, he throws a full-on right hand at you intended to break your jaw. This isn't a half-hearted right hand. This is a fully swung punch at you. You beautifully, beautifully evade the punch. You lean back because you'd already measured your distance when you gave him the little push with your left hand. You knew your, your distance from him. And as he swung, you've gone around the punch and you've grappled him and driven a, a, a takedown, a driving takedown. It was incredible. Walk me through that because this is the this is the moment that has gone viral for years. You know what? For, for years, I've worked as a doorman in, on clubs and pubs, and you know, the, the push off of the hand is you, you pick that exactly. That's what exactly I was doing. I was getting my distancing because you know he was angry, and you know what? Behind anger is fear, and you know he threw that you know, so angry. See, he was scared. Uh, it, was, it was so angry because he'd been embarrassed 
you know, he'd been put on show. Uh, but he put himself into that situation. Uh, so when he threw the punches, you know, that part was just instinct, you know, unconscious competence. Uh, but the the grapple that I did is not grappling. That's a footy tackle. <laughs> just uh, at that time, I had done no grappling at all. So that was a rugby. Played, that was a rugby tackle. A rugby league tackle. Yep, that was just <laughs> like, uh, you know, which you know, we, you know, most kids in Australia play when they're little kids. I only played in primary school as well. I didn't play any sport in high school, so uh, I don't know where. It just it was just in that in that one second. It was like when I was a you know like a kid in primary school had a few you know touch ups in school. I just you know I didn't know how to fight, so I just you know. Tackled them to the ground, you know, the schoolyard kind of stuff, and then yeah, that was it. Mate, at that, uh, yeah, at that moment, it, it it could have it could have broken out. I, I remember seeing Mike Ango pride butter off you, and Mike tried to almost Mike almost applied a rear naked choke on Butter Hurry to get him off of you. Jason Suddy was behind you, ready to back you up. He had your back. Uh, Raymond was there, Butters Butters mate Raymond, who was always with him as well. It was a bit of a brouhaha. If that hadn't been broken up at that time, what do you think would have happened with you guys down on the ground? Uh, probably someone would have stomped him. You know, there were so many guys after that coming up to me saying, hey, do you want us to get him? you want us to get him? Uh, you know, there's some pretty notorious people in sunny New Zealand who are more than happy to uh, beat the crap out of him. You know, Australia and New Zealand might be rivals, but when it's someone against us, it's, you know, we're like, you know, we're like two brothers, you know, we'll help each other out, even if we fight all the time. Uh, yeah, I just, yeah, by, by the time it got to there, I was just disgusted with his effort. I just thought, this guy's a dick. And, you know, I just, you know. Yeah, the fact, just, that, just the fact that you handled him like that in a, in a street fight situation, did that give you added confidence for the fight the next day, knowing, hey, you know what, I evaded this guy's punch. I rugby tackled him to the ground. I had his number verbally. I've had his number physically now. Did it give you even more confidence thinking, you know, I've got this kid? It wasn't like that. It was just that I just I saw the, the you know, the, the cracks in his armor. You know, like his mental game was not solid. And we've seen that again and again after years and years and years of, you know, breaking the rules and, you know, destroying awesome opportunities. Uh, yeah, he just kept going. So that was the thing, you know, anyone who knows anything about being a good combat sports athlete is, you know, your ability to keep it together under, you know, extreme duress or stress. And under stress, he cracks. So the press conference was an event in itself, and it was the first part of your incredible rivalry over so many years and a part that you won. We moved to the fight the following day, and it's set for three rounds. Um, the first round, you're on fire. You're doing well. You're landing some combinations. Butter is showing his length. How do you feel the first round went down there in Auckland? Uh, I, th I thought it was good. I thought it was, you know, actually, I think it's, uh, I, I just, you know, uh, watched it back just recently. Uh, it was an awesome round of kickboxing. You know, both of us going hard out, you know, uh, lots of, you know, good flurries both ways. But, you know, definitely the, the weight advantage helped in the first round. Second round, you felt Barter start to pick up a little steam? Second round, I thought Barter was being a little bit more technical. Uh, uh, and I thought that was a closer round. And then, in the, I guess, 
it, it was a closer round. It was, you know, it was good, good techniques. I think we'll kind of say, okay, we got through the first one. Let's see uh, if we can pull out our, um, you know, like specialty kicks or, you know, you know, let's finish this. You know, we were both going for broke. You know, we weren't thinking about anything else other than, you know, both of us were hunting to KO each other. There was no doubt about that in my mind that he'd come to, you know, he'd come to fight. Uh, so, you know, and I felt that. But also the thing that happened is when I threw the roll kick in that round, it, it glanced him and I That's thought, right. yeah, I know uh, I know he's got that chink in his armor, and I know that he did that automatically, not incorrect, so to speak, but automatically it works against that technique. So I thought, but he was too quick and too fresh. So in my mind, I thought, okay, he's, you know, I could feel his fitness, uh, uh, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to be on point to get this, and I thought, I'm going to have to really judge my fitness and control my, uh, uh, my pace. I might even have to, you know, take a few punches, so to speak, uh, to be able to throw that kick effectively if I think I have a chance of, you know, KOing him. So what I did was, of course, we start every round, you know, showing, hey, I'm here for business. You don't want to let on that there's anything going on. I still felt good, but not – I felt he was his fitness was better than mine marginally, but I was marginally heavier. So I thought I really need to pace myself. And then right when I felt it was coming to the last third of the last round, I, I intentionally really tried to pack it off so I was doing even less so that if when I hit those, uh, the clappers go, I could throw that kick with absolute, absolute 100% bad intentions, full power, full speed, and go for broke. And that was my plan, and it worked perfectly. Okay. Uh- the kick comes at 13 seconds to go in the final round. Peter, if this fight had gone the distance, do you think you would have won a decision or would it have gone to an extra round? What are your thoughts? I think if you look at it under K1 rules, I would have won. If I look at it under K1 being the governing body who wanted Bata to win, Bata would have won. Uh, and I think on a bad day, worst case scenario, maybe an extension. So let's talk. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, you know, what happened, happened. I mean, let's, I know you're a yeah. fine, and you look at it from a, a certain perspective. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, the first round, easily mine. The second round, you know, maybe 10 9, not easily, but I still think I won it. And the third round, okay, 10 8. Mate, I'll tell you what, at the time, I've got to be totally honest with you. And we've been on show for years. At the time, I thought Butter was winning the fight. But the more I look back at it over the years and I ask myself this question, uh, the more I do have to agree with you. If you really study every strike in that fight and really analyze it closely, I agree. I think you would have tipped it had it been scored without any bias. But given, as we said earlier, and as you, you, you stated earlier, that Butter was the guy they wanted to push, they wanted a bad boy, they wanted to breed a Mike Tyson esque figure for K1, they may have edged it to Bada or uh, give it an, an extension round. But let's talk about one of the all time most spectacular knockouts, not only in K1 kickboxing history, but in combat sports history, the Rolling Thunder. 13 seconds to go in the fight. You pull the trigger on a technique you've patented. It's the Peter Graham specialty. It was the first time the world had ever seen 
the rolling thunder. Talk me through that moment, the mechanics of the kick, how you knew how to throw it and where to throw it, and how you knew it was going to land with 13 seconds to go. You know what, Michael? I had never heard the behind the scenes uh, scuttlebutt, as it were, on what happened on that day. I've seen the the clips, of course. They featured them widely in K1 Battle Scramble. For those of you who are familiar with the show, um, you know, check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, but I didn't know how it all got set up. And it's really good to kind of get the behind the scenes look at that. Man, awesome. I'll tell you what, Jonathan, it was nice to walk down memory lane with Peter there and go back to 2006 in Auckland. Uh, and to think that one of the most viral videos in K1 history, I mean, that press conference video and that Rolling Thunder video has easily close to 10 million views just on YouTube, and it's gone all over the shop and everyone has seen it. And to, to, to recount it and look back at it and for Peter to take us behind the scenes in his psychology and the mind games with Barter, particularly in New Zealand, and what played out was just extraordinary. So once again, I do thank Peter, and I hope that everyone enjoyed uh, this very special episode of K1 Rewind. We will, of course, next week have the full interview with Peter Graham, where I do ask Peter a lot more about his K1 career, because the man fought three K1 World Grand Prix champions in Mark Hunt, Rima Bonjaski, and Semi Schult. He pushed Semi Schult to five rounds on just one week's notice. And he also has a win over Mark Hunt in the year that Mark Hunt won the K1 Grand Prix. So look out for the full interview with Peter Graham coming up on our bonus episode next week. But Jonathan, that's a wrap for K1 Battlecast today. My friend, thank you as always. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, join the airwaves with you. We'll do it again next time. Well, mate, I could not agree more. And thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of K1 Battlecast, the spiritual successor to K1 Battle Scramble. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a chance, please check out our socials. We're on X, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, all of those good things. Um, and send us an email. Come on. You heard all the questions that we answered today. We want to answer your question. That's right. We're serious about proselytizing K1 to the world. So why not ask a question? Who knows? You might find out something new. All right. Until next week, everyone. <laughs>